Our partner for this episode is Carl Treen and Food Forest Card Game. I love what Carl's done because with a deck of these cards and the many free games you'll find at foodforestcardgame.com, you can explore the different relationships that lead to functional permaculture designs, integrated homesteads, and more. By placing yourself at the center of the interconnected links of plants, insects, animals, and people, these cards allow you to play fun and challenging games that allow you to match the inputs of one card with the output of another to create beneficial relationships. You might try matching a card that produces nitrogen, such as clover, to a nitrogen consumer, like blackberries. Or, if a plant needs a trellis, like grapes, you can search for a plant that acts as one, like linden. By matching up these relationships in different types of plans, players discover how to use the complex web of nature to their advantage, both in the game and in the garden. In addition to being a fun game, Food Forest cards are responsibly sourced. Every deck sold plants multiple trees. Food Forest cards not only offset their impact, but honestly improve the environment. Learn all about the many games you can play and pick up a deck of cards today at foodforestcardgame.com. If you would like to feature your business, class, or workshop on the Permaculture Podcast, find out how you can join our family of sponsors at thepermaculturepodcast.com slash advertise. We live in a world that seems ever more chaotic and outside of our control. From a global pandemic that is unlikely to be the only one we experience in our lifetimes, to devastating natural disasters exacerbated by climate change that leads to weather weirding and chaos beyond our ability to properly map or mitigate. In the face of all of this, how do we avoid burnout and continue to practice permaculture and develop meaningful designs that fulfill the three ethics while improving the well-being of the natural world, our clients, and ourselves? To discuss how to manifest motivational longing in our lives is my guest Benita Ford, author of Embers of Hope, a meditative journal meets memoir. Bonita guides us through her feelings of loss of friends and family, the sorrow she feels over the state of the world and encompassing climate chaos, how these feelings can catalyze us to seek out what truly matters as inspiration rather than desperation. Through all of this, we share how we're navigating the tension between our grief in the moment and the hope we hold for the future. Enjoy this conversation with Bonita, and I'll join you again after. Then, Bonita, can you give us a bit of your biography and background and how you came to write your book, Embers of Hope? Thanks, Scott. So my background is in biochemistry. I went to university a first time to study that, and then I went back to graduate school to study holistic health education. And while I was there, I had the pleasure of doing a one-day workshop with Matisse Wackernagel, who is the founder of the concept of an ecological footprint. And I came away from that workshop feeling so inspired and also kind of, there was just something that didn't sit entirely well for me. It, just, it was almost like a kind of a mini calling in my work because I realized that in studying holistic health, we talked a lot about the body, mind, and spirit connection. And we didn't talk a lot about our connection with the earth. And I realized that even if we eat organic food and if biking is our main mode of transportation, and even if we meditate, if the water and soil and air around us is polluted, then it's really, really hard to be healthy. And from there, myself 
along with a group of other students and a professor at the university, we decided to start a an educational sustainability garden and just as a way of bringing more people outside of the classroom to connect with the land, to connect with the earth, and to just really feel that bigger sense of connection. And there were two people in that committee that were studying permaculture. And so that was my first introduction into the permaculture world. And I, shortly thereafter, I, I took a permaculture design course. I helped to organize another permaculture design course. And so all of that was in Northern California in the San Francisco Bay Area. And my partner, Sebastian, so the two of us are, are permaculture teachers, permaculture practitioners. And when we moved here to Perth, Ontario, which is unceded Algonquin Anishinaabe territory, back in 2008, we both found that we were just really, really eager to practice and share about permaculture. And there was a lot of interest in the community. So we started our own, our own business. And in those early days, I was really, really most passionate about bringing the principles of permaculture and the design process to, to businesses and to organizations. And so just to, to really doing social permaculture design. And I also started studying nonviolent communication and practicing and, and teaching and sharing that. And so at some point, I kind of had a little bit of a, a little spark that was lit in me to write a book. And I thought that it was going to be a book on social permaculture and nonviolent communication and how we use that in our lives and, and how people could use that. And I wrote a table of contents and I tried to write the introduction two or three times and it just didn't click. And it just, I, and I wasn't on any deadline and it was just kind of a project that I had on the side. And then at some point, a very dear friend was diagnosed with ALS, with Lou Gehrig's disease. And I think typically people who receive that diagnosis have maybe between a year and 10 years to live. And that was a really, it was a really deep wake-up call for me. And just being with her in that process, in her healing process, in her dying process, that really shifted the way that I relate to death. And that also gave me a really powerful metaphor for how I want to live with the, the ecological crisis and the, and the climate crisis that we're all facing right now. And that's where I was interested in your book is because one of the things that we don't often talk about is like the grief and the pain that comes with having to face what's going on in the world right now when it comes mm -hmm. to the climate as the world continues to grow and transform the way that that's changing our relationships with other people mm -hmm. and how all that kind of comes together in a way that can be very trying to work through in order to continue to do the things that we deeply care about. Mm -hmm. Yeah, agreed. Agreed. And I really, I really found that in, in the process of, of being, supporting my friend Catherine and writing the book. And, and after, after she died, my writing just, I just had so much to say and my writing got, the, the message just got really clear for me. And I really realized that there's so much wrapped up in 
in our relationship or, or maybe more accurately, our lack of relationship with death. So as I think as a society, kind of the dominant Western society, we don't hold death as a natural, sacred part of our lives. And I think this mentality or this attitude that we are invincible and that, you know, our kind of our, our perpetual growth economy, this capitalist system that we live in, it's such a disconnected way of being alive, I think. And so through the process of my friend, Catherine, focusing on her healing and then eventually shifting gears and making peace with her dying. And about a year after that, also supporting a very close family member in their dying process as well, too. All of that showed me if we can be grounded with death and dying, how much it can open us to our life and to our love and to our life purpose. And I think that was the missing piece or the missing thread that I really needed in order to move forward with the book. It was just this idea that even though our grief around our collective situation, all of the trauma that is happening in the world, all of the, the destruction that is happening to the living world around us and all that we're losing in terms of biodiversity and just the, the stability and health of ecosystems, all of that, if we're able to hold that with honesty and hold that in a supportive and grounded way, I really have found in my experience and just in working with other people that that can really give us the fuel that we need to keep going with this work because it's really, I think it's really easy as as activists, as teachers, as people who are working closely in these areas. just I know some people who have been doing activism for longer than I've been alive, and some people who have been environmentalists for the last you know, 30 or 50 years. And I think it's really, really hard to continue this work if we're close to the realities of this work and to see how much and how quickly we're losing everything around us, I think it's really, really hard to keep going. And for me, that's so much what Embers of Hope is about. It's been just learning to actively create space for that grief, to accept and embrace that, that grief and that loss, and at the same time to cultivate the hope that I need to keep going. And that hope is not a guarantee. It's not a guarantee that I know what will happen in my lifetime or for the future of humanity or life here on earth. It's just that small spark of hope is a kind of a continued desire to live, to love, and to nurture the life around me to the best of my ability. That you find embracing that grief and making death and dying a more natural part of our life rather than being, you know, at arm's length from it and that it's something that happens but isn't necessarily a part of our living process that you find liberation in that? I do. Very, very much so. 
I remember first learning about or hearing about the concept of near-term human extinction, watching a video about that, and, and it also included some of the ecological tipping points around the climate that some that are already in action or, or kind of are, have already begun. And just feeling so much despair around that and thinking, wow, maybe maybe humanity is done. You know, maybe this is it. Maybe, maybe we're seeing the end of the human species in my lifetime. And so what? And the only thing I could do in that moment was get up and get outside and go for a walk. And I found myself in the park and by just walking by the river and it was just a park in town. You know, it's not like a big forest. It's surrounded by by buildings and people. There were people walking their dogs. And I just remember that in that moment of thinking like, what if this is really it? What if we are done? And then I didn't have an answer for it. And everything just went still in my mind. And I just sat by the river and the water flowed and the water bubbled and the squirrels chased each other up and down trees. And this person walking their dog continued walking their dog. And I thought, oh, I still have this moment and I am still alive in this moment and there is still life around me in this moment and there's still, there's still life happening and living around me in this moment. And somehow that just gave me this sense of peace and the realization that it was kind of a a heartfelt and visceral realization that I don't know what the future holds. And none of us do. We don't know what tomorrow will bring. We don't know as an individual how long we have to live. We don't know how we're going to die. We don't know what kind of mystery and wonder our our lives will bring next month or next year. And so we don't know. And that moment of just not having the answer and not knowing and just seeing that life was still present, in spite of that not knowing, it did really free me to just be present and realize that I could continue to choose to give and to contribute to my community and to create and to love and to celebrate life, even without knowing. And that's so much what the book is about, is just encouraging people to hold both and to to try and hold both the despair, the grief, and the and the hope to envision and to put our life energy towards creating all that we wish to be possible. And at the same time, trying to make peace with painful realities and to make peace with the end. And for me, there's so much, there's so much spaciousness and possibility and power in that. There was something deeply, it was very spiritual. And it continues to be for me to learn to, to learn to make peace with death because that allows me to put everything that I have into making 
a good life for myself and my community. So yes, <laughs> yes, yeah. it was very liberating. Well, and I think of an experience that I had. There were these two moments in my life where I felt very small and insignificant in the universe. Mm. And there was a time when I was a teenager, we were Boy Scouts and we were in a boat a few miles from shore, uh, snorkeling at night. And as we were getting wrapped up, laying on the deck of the boat and looking up, and it's just the field of stars above us because there was no light pollution mm -hmm. or anything. We could just see for miles and miles. You know, there was no horizon except for the, the sky above us. And in seeing that, recognizing and realizing that there were more stars in that field than, than you know, were anywhere near me when it came to the people in life around me, mm -hmm. and that each of those stars represented so much within the universe. Mm -hmm. And similarly, um, just a few years ago, standing out on a winter's night in the middle of a farm field, again, miles away from everywhere, and looking up and just seeing all those stars again and realizing that I'm just one person on one little planet in yeah. this giant, magnificent universe, and that even though what I may do in this life is insignificant, against all of that or the time that was before us or the time that's yet to come, that it can still be this rich, beautiful, and bold life. Yes, 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 yes. I love that. And it's where I find that what you're doing with your book, it gives a lot of different ways in which people can connect to what you experienced mm -hmm. through kind of the introduction that you give us in memoir of what you've experienced, mm -hmm. and then the way you walk people through just a lot of different exercises that they can engage in to reflect on these ideas, whether or not there's someone who's necessarily, you know, would sit in a chair and meditate for hours on end, or would just be willing to pick up a pen and work their way through what you've shared with them. It was really interesting. You know, when I started writing the book, I just wrote because I had this inspiration shortly after my friend Catherine died. And especially at that time, I didn't know where the writing was going to go. I didn't know what this was going to be. And so I just wrote and wrote and wrote. And, I, and as, <laughs> at some point, I, I kind of stopped myself and looked back and I had, I don't know, 250, maybe 300 pages of writing. And I thought, ooh, <laughs> this is a lot of material. What am I going to do with this? And I just didn't know what format and how to put it all together to have it make sense I really wanted it to be a journey for the reader, something that, that a reader could make sense of and for it to be meaningful to someone else. And I realized at some point that storytelling, that, that sharing from our personal experiences, that sharing from my personal experiences and just some of the things that I've lived and some of the moments that I've cried and some of the, the moments that I have been just brought to tears out of gratitude and awe that those very full moments can really speak to people in very deep ways and maybe even help to catalyze people on their journey, maybe in ways that they weren't able to. When I think about the climate crisis, it's not a new thing. It's not just the idea that, that human activities are changing the earth, that industrial societies, industrial civilization has 
made a mark on the planet, that has made a lasting mark on the planet, and that even if humans disappeared today, future generations would be able to see that there was this time when, when there was this species that changed everything on this planet. And when I think about all of that, like none of this is new. So the science isn't new. The science has been around for decades and the solutions are all there. You know, I think about the Drawdown Project that Paul Hawken founded and, and the book that they released, I think it was maybe a couple of years ago. The solutions are all there. We have them. And it's about us individually and collectively choosing to change the way we live and to change the way we fundamentally see our relationship with the living earth. And so for me, it's not for a lack of knowledge. It's not for a lack of solutions. It's something that's deeper than that. And so for me, sharing stories that somehow touch us more deeply, maybe beyond what we can express in words, and also guiding people through their own experiences, through their own reflection. So in the last part of the book, because my, my stories in the book are not just for, they're not just educational, they're not just for the sake of educating people. They're hopefully for the purpose of inspiring people to do something differently in their own lives and to take more impactful action. And so the last part of that book is inviting people to design, to use permaculture design thinking, to be intentional about how they live and to think about and consider what needs are being unmet in their own lives and what needs are being unmet in the communities and in the world around them and how they could create more meaning in their own lives by taking better care of the life around them. And so fundamentally, my hope for this book is that it catalyzes change and that it catalyzes action for people. And that's one of the pieces that I keep returning to is that we have all the solutions that we need. Yes. We have all the information. We have all the technology we could want. It just requires a like personal and political will to see those changes in the world. And even though I fear that we only have maybe a decade or two left to make some really fundamental changes to the way that we live and the world operates, that at the same time, we're still in this period of transition where people want to see examples of how do you live like this? What does it look like if you're used to being a two-income, two-car family to move to one income or one car, or maybe one income and one car? How do we go from where we're currently living to a place where that kind of option is a possibility. Mm -hmm. And in doing those kinds of things that those of us who can show those examples, you know, we're still there at the forefront kind of hacking away into the, the jungle of what it's like to live like this. Well, there were three things that really jumped out in what you just said. And one was the personal and the political will. And I, I just really want to highlight both of those things because I think we 
sometimes can point the finger at individuals or we can point the finger at at governments. And I think the nature of this crisis is that it it's going to take both individual and collective engagement and change. I think it's going to take everything that we've got on all of these levels. And the other thing that you said that we might only have a decade or possibly two left to make the changes that are necessary before we see irreversible catastrophic climate chaos. And that brings me back in my heart and in my mind to my friend Catherine's diagnosis. I also volunteered with the local hospice here for for a couple of years. And I've seen that with some people, when they receive a terminal diagnosis, it can be a very empowering wake-up call. It's not pleasant. It's not comfortable. It can be terrifying. We can have moments of feeling just absolutely petrified. And at the same time, it can kind of help us let go and peel away the layers of all of the crap in our lives that don't really matter. Because when I've been with loved ones and friends and people in the community that were dying, they weren't worried about their second house. They weren't even worried about their first house. They weren't concerned about worldly affairs. It was more about relationships and people and being present and having gratitude in that very moment. And so for me, when I think about the IPCC coming out with their report saying that we basically have a decade left to make these changes, to me, that's terrifying. And it's, I think there's also tremendous potential behind that. So if we, if we really take that wake-up call, we could use this. We could use this in a really, really good way. And then the third thing that I thought about just from what you said, so I think about Joanna Macy and her work, and, and she has said that in this time, what she calls the great turning, there are kind of three kinds of roles for us. And one is stopping the damage. So just stopping. So people who are, who are putting themselves, their bodies on the line and saying, no, you are not cutting these old growth forests. First of all, this is not your land. And no, we're not allowing you to do that for your profit. So stopping the damage. The second is a consciousness shift. And I, I think that's part of, part of what you and I have been talking about, just holding a, a different perspective around life and death and our place in this world and holding all of this with more humility and respect and knowing that, that part of what we receive, that we also have responsibility for taking care of all that supports us. So I think all of those elements are, are part of a kind of a consciousness shift or an awakening, a cultural awakening. And then the third piece is, I think as you, as you were alluding to, 
she talks about just models of what's possible. So just creating new structures so that people can see there is another way to live. I don't just have to live in this way of working a nine to five and saving up to pay off my debt and saving up to go on vacation and or just trying to dig myself out of debt and trying to amass more stuff. And at the end of the day, none of this really satisfies me. And so for me, that third piece is, I think, a lot of what we're doing as permaculture practitioners is trying to live and show that there are other ways of being, that we can live in ways that actually build soil and that help to take care of the watershed and that build resilience in communities. So I say that, that we as permaculturists are practicing these things, and none of these things are new to human societies. So I think many Indigenous cultures around the world, especially those that lived in harmony with a place for, for hundreds or thousands of years, they did this naturally out of necessity. And it was just a way of living in harmony and, and living in health with the place. When I think about permaculture, the way I describe it to people now when I'm teaching is that I like to say that, that I think of permaculture as a language for people like myself who grew up in this, the dominant Western civilization, industrial civilization, that in the culture that I grew up in, I didn't learn to meet my needs for food or shelter or livelihood or transportation in a way that was in harmony with the rest of the living world. And so permaculture offers a language, it offers a lens, it offers a toolkit for people like myself who didn't learn those things growing up. I came to that realization because just in connecting with a couple of Indigenous elders, a grandfather, a grandmother, here in the last several years, almost a decade, just learning from them and realizing and hearing from them that in their families, in their communities, in their traditional teachings, they had all of this. They knew these ethics. They knew how to, to garden. They knew how to build homes. They knew how to read the landscape. They knew how to do all of this and leave plenty for everyone else and leave plenty for the rest of the, of the animals and plants around them. And so I think it's Western civilization, industrial or post-industrial civilization that is needing to relearn these things. And that's what is bringing us to this or has brought us to this predicament of a perpetual growth economy on a finite planet. We just can't keep doing this. And, and maybe we're seeing that, oh, we only have a decade or maybe two left to really change something fundamental if we want humanity to continue. And it's part of that vision of embracing these ideas of 
listening to the stories that others tell in looking back to what was even just a few generations ago where there was a much different connection with the land. I accept that technology has changed a lot. Our population around the world has exploded. Yes. But as we were saying earlier, a lot of the, of the solutions are already there. Mm-hmm. It's just weaving them back into the story of our current existence. Yes. Yes. I really like the way you put that. And I think about, you know, my grandfather is, was, you know, that paragon of like American individualism by being a farmer mm-hmm. and having this land and, and caring for it and the idea of all these skills. But I remember the way that my father would tell the stories of my grandfather. You know, if the plow broke, he still had to call somebody else to come in and repair it. You know, he could do certain things in a sense of self-sufficiency. Mm-hmm. But the more that I've explored these different pieces, it's where the social permaculture becomes so important to me is that Mm -hmm. we can't really be self-sufficient or self-reliant in Mm -hmm. the way that our modern myths or legends might tell us that we could be Mm -hmm. because we still rely on other people and society in order to live a rich and full life. I think that is such a powerful insight. I think it's so simple and so true. I really do think that that's kind of a modern myth that we could work towards being on our own and doing everything that we need to do for ourselves. And in reality, I think most of us, perhaps all of us came from traditionally, you know, if we think back to our grandparents, our great, great, great grandparents, did any of them not live in community? You know, did any of them not rely on a community of people that supported each other, that shared skills, that shared resources, that shared knowledge? I don't think so. I think you're absolutely right. And I do think that the piece around social permaculture and just really, you know, just like presently with COVID, so even before the lockdowns happened here in Canada, I was reading in the news about what was happening in Italy and just how the hospitals were overwhelmed. And I was really, I don't think anybody knew what was coming. I don't think any, any of us knew what to expect. And I was, I think, you know, worried and scared and anxious like so many people. And so especially when we kind of were in that tightest part of the lockdown for a couple of months, was that it was people, it was local people in the community that reached out to take care of each other. So yes, here in Canada, there have been programs to try and support individuals and small businesses financially. And I I am very, very grateful for all of that social assistance. And ultimately, what I got a glimpse of in that time was that it was my neighbors that when we were in quarantine for two weeks, it was our neighbors that checked in on us and just texted us. And it was friends that called and just seeing the mutual support groups that were forming on Facebook and people volunteering to pick up groceries for elderly folks that couldn't leave home. And, and so I do hope for change on so many levels. I do think that as individuals, we can make a lot of personal choices and personal changes. 
I do think that we can also demand of our governments to do more and to do differently. And I'm also not holding my breath for governments and institutions and for corporations to get it all sorted out for us and to save us, if you will. I think in this period, with COVID in this last several months, what I'm really seeing is that it's grassroots community and real relationships that are ultimately going to be what supports us. And that's where I really want to invest the most. Maybe it's like in the garden that it's just kind of back to the soil. That really, ultimately, if we want to encourage healthy plants, that ultimately that starts with healthy soil. And healthy soil building can be as simple as well as a complex process. Community building can be similar. And I do think it's worth our efforts to put our energy into the relationships around us, especially with our neighbors. Rebecca Solnit in her book, I think it's called The Paradise Built in Hell, she went around the world researching and talking with people. So, for example, she spent a lot of time interviewing people in New York City after 9-11, and she went to New Orleans after Hurricane Katrina. She said that from her research and from talking with people on the ground, that really in times of crisis, it is the people in our closest vicinity that are going to be the ones that help us. And there is sociological research and in the places that she visited, there was an overwhelming movement for people to give and to support one another. That there were more people giving and sharing and opening up their kitchens and opening up their homes and sharing supplies, there were more people doing that than there were people that were hurting others or stealing. And so I guess back to that, you know, that myth of self-sufficiency that I, I really think that, that it really behooves us to invest in this story of, of togetherness, of collective co-creation you know, maybe it's a story of, of us learning to be more like the soil, learning to be more like mycelia, learning to be more like this collaboration of life that makes all of the life stronger, that makes the whole community stronger. I never know where interviews are going to go. You know, we start these conversations with a kind of a light outline of knowing where we'll begin and where we'll end, but everything else just emerges in that liminal space between us in a conversation. And I'm thankful for that space in conversations like this because of all the things that we can touch on. And I really am glad that you joined me today, Benita, to add your voice to the conversation of what it means to practice permaculture in this moment from embracing the grief and understanding our role and the natural cycles of life through to the catastrophes that we have, as well as both our role as individuals and as community members in being examples and creating the change that's necessary so that we can still live joyous, bountiful lives. I always like to leave a few minutes for final thoughts. 
So do you have anything else you'd like to share with us before we draw this interview to a close? I just want to encourage the listeners to take a moment right now just to breathe and and be grateful. Be grateful for what supports us and makes our lives possible in this moment today. And with that gratitude to extend some of that goodwill out to the life around us, to our neighbors, to a stranger, to the land, the water. So thank you, Scott, for having me with you today. I've really, really appreciated and enjoyed our discussion today. And I'm delighted that you would join me for this interview on the Permaculture Podcast. But in this last moment, before we say goodbye, where can people find you and your book? So my book, Embers of Hope, Embracing Life in an Age of Ecological Destruction and Climate Chaos, folks can order the book on my website, and the website is embersofhopebook.com. And I also want to let folks know that I had a crowdfunding campaign, raised money, to provide free copies of the book to low-income activists. So if there are Black, Indigenous, people of color, folks who have not experienced privilege in some way in this system that we're living in, that have experienced oppression in this system that we're living in, and that are interested in the book and that cannot afford to buy the book right now, We have raised funds to provide free copies of these books for activists like you, perhaps. So please go to the website and ask for a book, and I would be happy to support other folks who are doing this amazing work. So thank you. And I'll make sure to include links to all of that in the show notes. So thank you, Benita, for joining me today and having this conversation. Thank you, Scott. And that was Benita Ford. Find out more about Benita's work and the book Embers of Hope at embersofhopebook.com. When you find yourself in a moment of grief, how do you foster hope? Let me know. Leave a comment in the show notes or get in touch. Show at thepermaculturepodcast.com. To go along with this conversation, I have a bonus episode available for Patreons, which features some of the processes I go through to ground myself in chaotic times. As a Patreon supporter, you'll receive those bonus episodes, early access to ad-free episodes, a monthly Ask Me Anything, and much more. You can subscribe month to month or for an entire year at patreon.com slash permaculturepodcast. I continue to explore the permaculture pit and how each of us can move through a period of inspired uncertainty as we embrace permaculture design and apply these ideas to our lives. If you find yourself in this place and are looking for the resources, opportunities, and ideas that can help you take your next steps, I'm here to help. You can schedule an informal meandering with me to discuss whatever you're working on at calendly.com slash permaculture slash meandering. If you're working on a permaculture design, homestead, or other work, and would like me to bring my decade of experience and knowledge to your project, you can schedule a consultation with me at calendly.com slash permaculture. Finally, if you'd be interested in a workshop on storytelling for design, please get in touch and I'll add you to the mailing list for this upcoming class. 
show at thepermaculturepodcast.com. Until the next time, spend each day holding space for your feelings while taking care of Earth, yourself, and each other.